Well, hello and welcome to another great episode of today's Conversations on Leadership, powered by Life University. I am your host, Dr. Jill Lamarche, and I'm thrilled today to welcome Mr. Louis Negron. Uh, Louis is the Executive Director and Chief Operating Officer of the, Wonder, the 100 Black Men of Atlanta. And he's got a really interesting story. So I'm going to read a section of this because it will really tell us who this man is, who he was, who he has become, and why he is such an effective leader. They say his story, both personally and professionally, is somewhat unique. Born and raised in Oakland, California, to Puerto Rican parents, Negron gained his first nonprofit experience as an intern with the Children's Defense Fund, headed by famed children's rights activist Marion Wright Edelman. After a decade-long stint in higher education, Negron returned to the nonprofit world where, over the years, he worked with agencies such as Year Up, United Way of Atlanta, United Way of Transylvania County, Operation Hope, and Supportive Housing Communities. He's a skilled fundraiser and a skilled networker, and I'm told a very, very skilled leader. Negron had a personal epiphany in 2016, just five short years ago, where a stroke actually left him paralyzed on one side of his body for a week. He knew changes were needed after his weight had grown to 425 pounds. Big man, but I know now with a big heart, his marriage had become toxic, he had reached his nadir. So Negron did what he had to do. Got a divorce, gave up more than 100 pounds, became an ordained minister and a certified wellness and life coach, which certainly fits very, very well with the mission of Life University, which is really to build health and wellness and healthcare, natural healthcare to the world. He turned things around after changing his diet and learning to better manage his time. He now typically runs three to four miles each morning. And one morning, hopefully soon, I'll invite him to come and do a run with me at the Life University campus, because most of you listeners know that, you know, I run 5Ks very regularly and we hosted a beautiful 5K here in December called Run the Lights of Life. So at some point, Luis and I are going to get on a track or in a beautiful trail together. But in May, he was awarded a Master's of Arts in Christian Ministry from Mercer University, previously earned a Master's Degree in Administration from Central Michigan University, and a Bachelor of Arts Degree in Spanish from Morehouse College in Atlanta. Negron is happily married to Dr. Adrienne Pinckney, and the couple welcomed the birth of twin daughters. Isabella and Delilah, or Delilah, right, in February. After relocating from Charlotte, North Carolina, Negron and Pickney live in a 102-year-old house they are restoring in Atlanta's historic West End. Uh, Lewis, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be with me today and to share some of your insights and wisdom and experiences with our audience. But thank you. It's indeed a pleasure to be here. And also, I just want to say for your audience that speaks Spanish, I know Life University has a large population of Puerto Ricans. And just want to say, mucho gusto a mis hermanos de la Isla Boricua. Aquí estamos en Atlanta, en Negrón de Bayamón. Ahí vamos. <laughs> I did not understand that since I'm French, but I'm sure that our Spanish audience are very grateful that you took the time to give them a little word of welcome and probably a little word of encouragement. Sort of was be able to tell by, by the... Um, the mannerisms and the, your facial expressions. So let's get right into our little interview here. Can you name a person who, or, or people, who had a tremendous impact on the shift that you created in your life that allowed you to take on 
the leadership roles that you have, and particularly now with the 100 Black Men of Atlanta, I mean, it's a serious role. When I learned more about that organization at a golf tournament that we're at, and realizing that you have some really, really heavy hitters that play in your sandbox that support everything that you're doing. And to have taken on that role requires a lot of commitment and dedication. So who are some of the people that have actually influenced to get you to where you're at, that you are in that role and supporting such a great, great organization? Well, thank you. Thank you. I think my, my career journey and my trajectory actually starts from where I was born, Oakland, California. Um, my, my family moved from Puerto Rico in the 1950s. We were actually like the first Puerto Ricans in the Bay Area. Um, you know, not Puerto Ricans are no more to be like in New York or New Jersey, that type. But um, yeah, we were the lone Puerto Ricans in, 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 in the area that had a large population of Chicano, Mexicanos. Uh, but my dad was a black Puerto Rican. My mom's a white Puerto Rican. So a lot of people thought I was a mulatto or we were like from like New Orleans until they heard to speak Spanish. And I grew up in North Oakland, which is near Berkeley. And I had the, the I was born in the 70s. So for me, I had the ending of what was known as the flower power and the hippies and things of that nature, also the social change. Huey P. Newton, who was the founder of the Black Panther Party, went to my high school. I saw him regularly. Um, the Black Panther Party was founded around the corner from my house. So I had a lot of social and, 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 and information that was fed to me in Oakland as an activist. So when I came at 18 years old to meet Marion Wright Edelman, it was a natural fit. And the Children's Defense Fund at that time had what was known as the Black Community Crusade for Children, as well as the, um, the Black Student Leadership Network, which I ended up co-chairing um, when I came to Morehouse. And for me, it was always how could I reinvest in my community? I think for me, um, it was really important to give back because I had gained so much from Oakland, California and the people that were there who were mentoring me. And Ms. Edelman opened my eyes to how to impact on a national level. She took a gamble on, look, on an 18-year-old Puerto Rican boy from Oakland who, who was just trying to find his way. And the six years, eight years that I spent with her were amazing. I learned to do grants. I learned to do community investment. Um, I learned to do evaluations. I learned to you know, speak with the Rockefeller Foundation, the Kellogg Foundations. And I did all this while I was here at Morehouse. I would go to class on Tuesdays and Thursdays and then travel <laughs> wherever she needed me. And I think also when I think about it, I think of Dean Gaffney. Um, he passed away several years ago, but he was the dean at Morehouse College. Um, dean Gaffney believed in the work that I was doing, advocated for me to be able to have my classes on those days and really encouraged me because at Morehouse, you know, following the footsteps of giants, when you think of Dr. King, when you think of Maynard Jackson, when you think of those individuals and Maynard Jackson was still alive at the time I was at Morehouse. So he was always on campus, always had a listening ear. So, so for me, it was those conversations that were able to have and move forward. I did a lot of work actually with Mrs. King when she was still alive um, at the King Center. So it, it was, again, reinvesting in the community here in Atlanta and around the South and also keeping a bilingual aspect to it. So I did a lot of work with Sarah Gonzalez, um, who was um, the founder and, and, and the chief and the CEO of the Georgia Hispanic Chamber. Um, she passed away several years ago, and there's a memorial park named for her in, in Atlanta called Sarah Gonzalez Memorial Park. So I kept the, 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 the strata of Afro-Latinoism alive for me. So in doing that, it allowed me the opportunity to learn, to, to, to absorb the wisdom, and to see how things were done. The issue was I was young. A lot of people were like, how is this 25-year-old know so much, but yet no one wanted to give me the opportunity. You know, if I applied for an executive director job, they're like, you really don't have 
in their eyes, I didn't have the years of, of training and wisdom. But even though I did have it, um, I had to cut my teeth in, in higher ed and other places to be able to prove myself and to be innovative in those spaces. And I could talk about that a little later as we as we go through. Well, I would love to talk to you about how you were innovative in those spaces and also how you contribute to the community. Because you said, you know, reinvesting into the community. Give people insight on how they could reinvest in the community or how you did it and how others can do the same thing. Because at the end of the day, we are a community. A community is made up of great people who are willing to serve. But so often people just stay sort of in the background often because they're uncertain on how they could serve or, or on how they could reinvest. So how did Luis do that? Well, I was able to go into the community and just listen, listen to what were the needs. And, and I, I can't, you know, of course I can't solve everyone's problems, but I could do a food drive. I could do a coat drive, or I could write a grant for certain educational opportunities for students in doing a community partnership with other nonprofits and not do it alone. Um, collaboration was real key for me. So I um, I worked a lot with the YMCA of Atlanta. I worked with other um, nonprofits locally in schools. Um, I got to know principals and teachers and PTA presidents because you have to have a community or a tribe together to be able to solve a problem. I you know I concentrated on the west side of Atlanta because I was at Square Morehouse, so that was really key for me. Um, when I got on a national level working with Miss Edelman, um, I really looked at how to start the Ella, Ella Baker Training Institute. And I was focusing on young people getting the skill sets of um, community development and really, really focusing on my age group at the time. You know, we were in our early 20s of how to go and reinvest and do freedom schools. So that was one thing that really led for me. So we had college students that we trained over the summer, went into different parts of the country. I, was, I, I led the Oakland Freedom Schools. There was one in L.A. and then several around the country. And we started these schools from scratch, but we worked with churches. We worked with PTA. We worked with the the cities, to to you know. We and it was months of, of planning and getting this agreements together, but it happened. And we were delivered food for the children, and we delivered programming, um, you know. And and we did measure. We did that for several years. Um, several of those organizations actually turned into actual freedom schools that um, are alive today. But I know for me, it was just also taking the chance on myself to really put myself out there. And really being not afraid to hear no, because I heard no plenty of times. And knowing that I can still knock on other doors and other doors will be open. But being humble in that space, because a lot of times I wasn't from the community. And I had to be able to just sit and listen to the elders in the communities and really the needs of the, of the children. And, and I love, I mean, you, you gave probably a half a dozen really, really important points in this, the answer to that particular question. But, you know, what stuck out for me was, Listen to the needs, pay attention. Don't just go out and try to do something because you think it's the right thing, but rather listen to the needs and then serve the needs mm -hmm. of the people. Correct. And then build a tribe around you so that you can create that energy of collaboration that then continues to move the needle forward to build exceptional communities. Yes, I do agree with you on that 100%. Um, I also think something that's key that most people need to do is to have trust. You can't go into a community and do the work if you don't have trust. You have to be authentic with it and, and be humble and, and, and establish trust. Because once trust is established, people will believe, people will contribute, and people will um, work to see the difference. So how do you build trust for our <laughs> audience? I have my ideas on how I do it. How do you build trust? I start with conversations. I start with listening. I, I, I start with just meeting people at their level. Um, I don't come in. I'm. I don't come into space and be like, "Oh, I'm the CEO." 
I come in to see what can I learn from you? And also, I'm honest, how can we establish trust? Because I need to hear how they want to establish trust so I could then adjust my way of adjusting to them so we can meet together to establish trust together. It really is all about listening, isn't it? It is. Because when you listen with the intent to understand, not with the intent to just fix a problem, but you listen with the intent to understand, then the relationship evolves because people feel that honesty, that authenticity, that integrity that you mm-hmm. bring to the conversation. Yeah. And I would say the listening, just not with the intentive ear. You got to listen, see people's body language. You also got to read between what they're saying. You got to see the, the emotion in which they have and, and how people react and, and, and also in the space in which you're working in. You have, you know, listening goes beyond just, just you hearing words. You have to be able to interpret and see a variety of ways. And, and ask questions, right? When one of the statements that I learned from a mentor was when you're having conversations like that and you're asking questions and you you need a little bit more info, instead you you know the common question asked was, so would you, would you be willing to tell me more? Yes. That has been a powerful question for me in a lot of the relationships that I've built. So yes. I appreciate where you're taking this conversation. Um, as it relates to your current organization, I mean, you know, you've served in many different ways, but as it relates to your current organization, Luis, how do you encourage creative thinking in the, the 100 Black men of Atlanta? I trust my staff. Um, one of the biggest things I had to do come in was um, to assess the trauma in which this organization and also the community we serve has suffered historically, and then to also meet people at the level in which they are working, and then to let them know that they truly do have the freedom to express to me the good, the bad, the ugly, and you know, and not have a consequence. And I think, and again, it, again, it's building the trust, building a community with people here, and then them seeing me take leads on 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 hard questions, and and hearing me just be consistent in how I lead and what I do and what I say. Um, I think you know my actions speak louder than my words, and it, and they seen that consistency. So building that and having that has allowed my team. When I say, give me your feedback, not to just give me a, a high level. I actually want to hear their true feedback. And I think it's at a point now, you know, being 10 months in this, in, in this organization, they've been able to open up and have free thought, know that their free thoughts would not be hindering them. But actually I'm looking for thoughts because I, told them, I don't have all the answers as the leader. Yes, I'm the leader and I can help lead. But my important thing is how to build up other individuals to have a say at the table and to give me feedback because that's how we grow as an organization and be more creative in the work that we do. Yeah, I think and what I heard you say there, the best way to build a great, strong organization is to pour into our people and allow them to express themselves to us in a real open, authentic fashion. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that creates strong organizations for decades, I would say. Yes. Um, again, great insight in just a couple of questions, but, uh, you know, this is a short time for us together today, but... What advice would you give someone who's going into a leadership position, someone who may be going into a leadership position for like the first time? I would say take some time for themselves. Um, If they can go somewhere where it's a quiet place, they could get away from all families and friends. I would say take a week to themselves so they can have time to, to have introspection of what they want, how they want to serve. And also, what, what, what would they be willing to, you know, how would they be willing to serve? 
I think for me, when I got in my first C-suite level job, it was, I was so excited. And a mentor said, you got to take some quiet time just to hear your own thoughts. Because they said, once you're in the road, you're going to just be bombarded and you will hear so many voices. Um, the other thing is trust your gut, you know, trust your heart, trust your spirit, because you already know the answer as you're going through. Then don't let anyone shake the foundation. Prepare for bullies. That could be on the board. It could be a chairperson. It could be a funder. Prepare for bullies or even someone you work with and know how to handle the narcissism and the bullies that come to set them straight and not deter your path. Um, and that's just that's just honest feedback. I think most people don't even want to discuss that, but they do exist. And they're the ones that want to bulldog your career. Know how to handle them in a professional, tactful manner. And then I say the biggest thing you want to do is um, have time to self-heal. Have time to just 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 go get your massages or find your quiet space or find your safe space that you'll be able to heal as you do this work. Well, you've shared some very powerful insights in a very short period of time. Uh, I thank you again for, for joining me this morning. And I look forward to uh, in the new year, getting together for lunch or at least going to visit you. Yes. And I'll, I'll get uh, my assistant on that. So we can, I can tell that we're kindred spirits. We're, we're walking sort of parallel paths on how we show up for humanity and, and how we choose to serve. So I'm very, very grateful that you chose to join me today. And any closing comments for our audience? I just want to thank, um, thank you for your gift of time. Thank you for listening. Um, if any of you want to connect with us, you can visit us at um, the 100 Black Men of Atlanta, ATL.org. Um, if you want to volunteer, we have plenty of volunteer opportunities. Um, if you want to be a friend of the 100, more than happy to have you come and visit our robotic center and just see what the wonderful work we do. And um, we'd love to also partner with Life University and also other individuals on campus if um, we could continue this talk. And uh, I appreciate your time today, my brother. Thank you. Peace and oh, blessing. We're, we're going to do that in the new year, I promise. I'm going to get my assistant to communicate with you today and find a date on our mutual calendars that will work so we can continue uh, this conversation and continue working together for the betterment of humanity. Yes. So thank you again so much for being with me thank today. You. Thank you. God bless. And adios a todos mis amigos. <laughs> Gracias, señor. Gracias. <laughs>